Hello, welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, music and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club, which explores feminism and social justice through literature, arts, music and food. Each episode, I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Monica Radojevic. Monica is a Brazilian Montenegrin writer, award-winning poet and women's rights advocate. In 2019, she became the inaugural winner of the Murky Books New Writers Prize for her poetry and her debut collection, Teeth in the Back of My Neck, was published in 2021 with Penguin Random House. Her writing has been described as a vital contribution to literature by Huck Magazine and Courageous and Arresting, a poet to watch by The Independent. In 2022, Monica launched Feminist Invoicing, a poetry project and workshop series about power dynamics and what we're owed from systems of oppression. Her debut short story collection, A Beautiful Lack of Consequence, and debut novel, Strangerland, have just been acquired by Penguin and will be published in 2025 and 2026, respectively. Thank you so much, Monica, for joining us today. Ah, oh, thanks for having me. It's so nice to be here. So let's get started. Which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party? Yeah, I, I found this hard just to narrow it down to three, but the immediate, like the person who will always be at the top of my list is Frida Kahlo. Um, just, I mean, self-explanatory, right? Absolute icon, incredible painter, incredible artist, incredible creative, like such a brilliant political figure. Uh, I... I love her. I've read a couple of biographies of her and I think she is one of the most intriguing artists uh, and just individuals. So she would definitely, definitely be there. Um, then I would have Carmen Maria Machado, who is the author of um, Her Body and Other Parties, which is a short story collection. And also uh, In the Dream House, which is like a memoir um, of her of an abusive relationship that she went through. Um, and I think she's just such an exquisite writer. And she really, really influenced my own writing. Um, I think... Uh, yeah I just I, I she is my favorite writer and her books I reread them often and I'm continuously blown away, away by them and I just I think she's really inspired me um, especially for my short story collection which I'm working on uh, at the moment and editing at the moment and then I think the third guest and I was really it was a toss-up between two so I, it was either going to be Angela Carter or Arundhati Roy and I I ended up going for Arundhati Roy just because the god of small things I remember reading it at school and just falling in love with the way that she wrote and the way that she used character and this whole like she she has a very um experimental way of writing it's very very different it's quite unique and I remember she had this character that was a moth uh, and the moth like kind of flitted in and out of scenes and came at moments of like extreme trauma and I just found it was such an incredibly powerful tool that I found myself like after I read it I used to like write I wrote all the time when I was younger but I used to write where I would like incorporate this character of the moth into my writing like basically basically blatantly like copying her which <laughs> obviously hasn't hasn't made it into any of my actual <laughs> more serious writing but yeah I just thought um her writing has also shaped me in so many ways and it would be just an honor for me to get to like talk to all of them um because they've all influenced me in different ways mm. I mean those are some great choices obviously Frida Kahlo her reputation kind of 
is is massive. Um, in terms of Carmen Maria Machado, we actually read um, her short story collection for one of our books this summer, and uh, it was a great hit. So, um, yeah, a great a great choice. And Arundhati Roy is a kind of I love her her writing. So, do you think these guests um, at a dinner party would they would they get on? Uh, I like to think so. I think they would, um, e even if they're from kind of slightly different eras. I think in my head, Frida Kahlo can kind of talk to anyone. She's She's got that kind of gift, um, which is not a gift I have. So I, I, I envy that. But I think just based on what I've read about her, she seems to be able to be the life of the party. In fact, she was so magnetic that she was the life of the party, even if it wasn't about her. So I think she would probably be able to get on with everyone. Um, and I think Carmen Maria, Carmen Maria Machado and Arundhati Roy are the kind of writers who will also be really gracious and welcoming. I'm, you know, I've, I've got, I, I'm just going off of based on like my own admiration for them. But I think what it would probably be is the three of them would be talking and I would just be sitting there in awe and I probably wouldn't say a word and just listen uh, and see what kind of gems kind of come out of their mouths. Mm. So where's this dinner party taking place in a kind of imagined space or in your home or somewhere else? So I think that I would have it in, there's a place in Brazil, which is where I'm from, um, where I have gone to many, many times. Um, and it has like a lot of childhood nostalgia and a lot of great great memories associated with it I think nostalgia will probably be a theme through this dinner party I'm afraid but um it's a farm in uh the state of Goiânia in, in central Brazil and it is this gorgeous like expansive space it's a small house with like lots of kind of like cobbled together rooms and a like stunning outdoor kitchen and a veranda and there's a, a small swimming pool and a river um and at night this place becomes uh, this incredible, incredible landscape. And the stars, I've never seen anything like it. The stars that come out at night um, in this in this area, it's like nothing you've ever seen. It's like an entire galaxy right there. And so I would have it there because it is warm. It's a little bit humid, but it's not too humid. There's usually like a gentle breeze. It is just paradise to me. So I would have it there because part of me, I think, just wants to show off my country and be like, this is this place is amazing. Everyone should come here and enjoy it here. I mean, I, that sounds like a kind of idyllic. Um, what tunes are going to be on repeat all evening? Okay, well, I thought it was going to be nostalgic. And I think I unintentionally ended up going with three of my like child, not childhood, like tweenhood uh, songs. So the first one, and like it, it would, they, none of them go together at all. So it would be an absolute disaster to listen to all of them together. But that's what I went for and I stand by them. So the first one is Masquenada by um, Sergio Mendes. And I'll go for like, I could go for the original. I could go for like the Black Eyed Peas remix. Um, but I remember listening to that as maybe like a 15 year old and being really like shocked but also pleased that um something like that that a Brazilian song uh, with Brazilian words in it and uh kind of Brazilian culture woven through it had made it into like a mainstream song um which is kind of sad to think about now but at the time I was just really really proud and thrilled and also it was just a shock to like turn on I think I watched it on 
you I used to watch the music video on YouTube and it was just such a shock to kind of find it in such a mainstream place and hear it in you know on the radio wherever it was playing as a kid so it would definitely be that one and also it's a great dancing song uh and all of the like my taste in music is kind of random it's it has like no shape to it at all it's basically if I can dance to it I probably really like it so the second one would have to be oh, I mean I'm even a bit embarrassed I don't know why but it would have to be Fearless by Taylor Swift and it I just remember being like 12 or 13 and listening to this song and you know when you're 12 or 13 you're like coming into your teenage body and it's all changing and it doesn't really feel like it's your own anymore and it's really awkward and uncomfortable and I remember being like in that age and feeling really self-conscious and and not very confident and just hearing that song and be like I too am fearless uh even though that was definitely not the case um so it would yeah Taylor Swift's on there for that obviously that little moment of nostalgia and then Grace Kelly by Mika mm-hmm. um like same reason pretty much I remember being 12 or 13 listening to that and being like I want to be like Grace Kelly because she sounds amazing and it is just such a bop and I used to dance around my bedroom that I used to share with my sister and another childhood friend and we would dance around to that entire album but I still know all the words to Grace Kelly and I went to see Mika last year live and I we it's it's his most popular song he played at the very end and everyone in that crowd was screaming and the energy was incredible and you can dance to it so it's like a perfect for me it's a perfect song Mm. I mean that song and Mika in general is kind of an amazing artist and some real bops from like noughties (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) gen z zillennials millennials whatever kind of 90s babies um yeah Mika was a a a big part of our childhoods definitely massive um so you've got Taylor Swift Sergio Mendes Mika playing in the background in this beautiful uh part of Brazil Frida Kahlo uh and Renati Roy Carmen Maria Machado is uh, sitting around the table what are you serving for your starter well the starter that I have in my head is like burrata and it comes from I think I went to a restaurant and I I can't remember it because I have a really bad memory but it was probably around 10 years ago or so but I went to this restaurant and they served like it was like on a little silver spoon it was like a mouthful of burrata that had been soaked in olive oil and balsamic vinegar and it just kind of melted on my tongue and I was obsessed with that starter. I've never been able to recreate it exactly. But obviously, in my dream dinner party, I can whip it up from scratch in a second. So we'd serve that and it would come with like basil and tomato on the side. And there'd be way more than just one spoonful. I mean, we'd all get an entire plate each. Um, because also in my dream dinner party, we're never full. Because I, I find that very sad when you're eating all the great food and you can feel like feel yourself filling up and you're like no but I want dessert I want all of these other dishes so can't get full in my dream dinner party so we'd have as much of that as we wanted then I think for mains I'd have uh my grandma's rice and beans um 
like with Brazilian steak, uh, the kind of area that my family come from, that area is like really renowned for its beef. So it would be beef steak. Um, something called farofa. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's like a um, like a pow- like a flavored powder that you sprinkle over your food, and it's made of like dried ground cassava and other like spices and herbs, and it is absolutely delicious and usually we sprinkle it on top of our meat and or on top of our rice and beans um and I'd have a side of plantain uh because I love it and when I when I'm in Brazil I eat that for every single meal um yeah because I I think like again I'm really leaning into nostalgia here because I haven't tasted my grandma's food in years she's she passed away um four or five years ago now and before she passed away I hadn't seen her in about six years so I haven't tasted her food for over a decade Mm -hmm. but I grew up eating it and to this day like nothing comes close to it my mum comes close but nothing quite touches (laughs) grandma's food you know so again like just really leaning into this like childhood I think it's also because I'm about to go to Brazil again with Mm -hmm. my family um it'll be the first time my entire family have gone back in uh, almost 15 years so wow. it's a big big moment for us yeah amazing that's that's amazing it, it because it's a dream feminist dinner party would you like uh your grandma to be able to cook the meal oh you know what I didn't even think of that yeah I absolutely would and I would probably want her to attend as well so I oh. like I know I've just broken the rules here but she'd be <laughs> an unofficial she'd be an official guest as well because I'm not sure she'd have any idea of who these three (laughs) were um but I think my grandma was the kind of woman that um she had a very infectious laugh and she laughed at everything and also she was the kind of person who laughed at her own jokes which (laughs) then you would laugh along with her so Mm -hmm. I think she'd have a great time even if she probably would have no idea who these people were (laughs) not Frida Kahlo no she would you know my grandma um she came from a very very impoverished background and she didn't really go to school and she uh spent most of her time working she had like a very uh hard life quite a big chunk of her life so unfortunately I think she probably wouldn't have had much time Mm. to um to think about and to like engage with art and literature and and music even though I I think she probably would have loved it Mm. I mean, it sounds like the best opportunity for her to kind of get to know Frida Kahlo is by meeting her. So (laughs) that would work really well. Um, And how about for your dessert? Okay, so dessert, I I have a massive sweet tooth, but um, the thing that I always crave after a meal is fruit. And it's because when I grew up, my mum would always give us fruit after we ate. so it would be really just juicy sweet tropical fruit you know mango avocado papaya guava pineapple um and it would just be you know when you bite into a piece of fruit and it is absolutely absolute perfection it's the sweetest it could be without being too sweet it is ripe but it's not overripe it's juicy but it's not mushy just perfect it would be that it would be a big bowl of that um and uh, yeah, like I toyed between that and like maybe like a cheesecake or something. But fruit for me wins every time because especially I live in the UK, you can't get as good fruit here. It's just uh, not the same. 
maybe apples maybe that's about <laughs> it maybe some apples and grapes something but yeah. when I whenever I go to Brazil the fruit there is not only better it's also huge I was in the supermarket in Brazil last year when it was just me and my mum and I picked up an avocado that was the size of my head uh and I was just like oh, wow I can't I've never seen anything like this my mum was laughing at me she's like you're so English <laughs> I mean our fruit we do British fruits very well obviously but yeah <laughs> tropical fruit is not good in London or, or in the UK um so and I think it would be a real treat to be able to eat it in Brazil surrounded by uh the kind of trees that bore the fruit and that kind of thing so yeah oh coconut as well and yeah. coconut water I love fresh green coconut water delicious so you've eaten music's playing the sun is setting how's the night kind of progressing is it uh, in conversation or in dancing uh what's happening oh it would absolutely be dancing absolutely <laughs> I mean I've I've queued it up with the music right so mm. we would probably have to take a pickup truck all the way to a local town which is a very small sleepy town and they serve fantastic ice cream so we'd probably go get some ice cream and then we'd head off to I mean the great thing about brazil is that you can dance anywhere mm. people dance in the street people dance at home people dance literally anywhere if there's music there'll be people dancing and there's always music so there'd definitely be like a sleepy little bar or there'd be something going on in the street and we'd have a little dance and it would probably be somewhere where if you know I imagine my grandma probably need to sit down after a while Frida might not be up to it that evening mm -hmm. um, so we'd have some chairs available We'd have maybe a little table for ourselves. We'd go dancing. We'd come back and sit down, have a beer. That's what I think we'd end up doing and just chatting the night away. And again, we'd probably, I think we'd be chatting up into the late, late hours. Mm. Uh, and it would probably be uh, my grandma that would be like, right, this is ridiculous. Everyone needs to go <laughs> to sleep and like enforce a bedtime on all of us. Or she'd be like, come back home, everyone. We'll all sleep in the front room together. It's another very like Brazilian thing. My family, oh, certainly my family in Brazil anyway, we, everyone is just like, no, come over, stay, stay the night. Don't go back alone. Um, so it'd probably be that. And um, the other thing that I think I didn't mention at the beginning, um, one of the reasons why Frida Kahlo means a lot to me not just for her art and her politics but um, I have chronic pain and so did she um, obviously because of, of that bus accident that happened to her in her life and so I always whenever I think of a party whenever I think of any kind of social event I always think of like but where can I sit down or like where can I escape to if I need to and I feel like her and I would probably have that in common um, and despite you know the tremendous amount of pain she lived with she was constantly creating and innovating and I, I I'm not about to compare myself in terms of like what I'm doing with my own creative work but it is you know Frida Kahlo not only is a feminist and communist she was also like a disability rights icon um for her life and her legacy and I I would want that to be represented at my dinner party mm. I mean I, as someone with uh, dyspraxia who gets kind of joint pain and 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 gets very tired, I I completely uh, agree with you. And Frida Kahlo is, I I went and visited her house in Mexico this summer actually. <gasps> That's and my it dream. <laughs> it was very beautiful, and um, 
very moving because she was a disabled woman and people don't yeah. really see her as that and a disability was not seen in the same or viewed in the same way as it is now so um yeah a, a brilliant addition to the dinner party yeah I probably would want to talk to her about that if she wanted to talk to me mm-hmm. about it I'd love to know how she saw herself because she kind of writes about herself as this woman in in pain constantly but a lot of that pain was related to the loss of of you know the many miscarriages that she had and and her desperation for children and um you know kind of she refers to her body a lot as like a body in rebellion but mm-hmm. i i would love to know whether she thought of herself as somebody who was disabled and whether she because it obviously it's built into her work in in so many different ways and as did pain but I wonder like what kind of language would she use for that how would she envision that and and also I wonder if she would even perhaps reject that label because she always saw herself as this also this very powerful woman who was capable of a great many things so I wonder as well like how how would that sit with her mm-hmm. So it's ending in dancing. Mm. Um, and what do you feel you kind of want people to get out of the dinner party? What What would you like to get out of the dinner party? Oh my gosh, on a selfish level, I just want them all to want to be my friend. <laughs> uh, I don't know what I could possibly offer these three brilliant women other than adoration, but um, I would want them to like me obviously but I think what I would want to get out of it as well is just to hear these three incredibly creative women talk about their creative practice what inspires them what moves them and also their politics these these are also three deeply political women who you know talk about or advocate for a number of like really really important things whether that's disability whether that's kind of uh, liberation um, under like oppressive regimes or whether that's queer rights um or feminism so I'd want to see how they weave those things into their into their creative practice because that's what I do my writing is really deeply political and I'd love to kind of almost like learn learn how they how they do it um in, in such nuanced and beautiful and like really powerful ways mm-hmm. but I'd also hope that they would get on with each other and like maybe they're leaving you know making plans for like a little collaboration that they're going to do or or an afternoon of painting that they're going to take together or you know like something like I'd hope I love it when I see women in a room uh talking to each other and making these new connections and being like oh well I've always wanted to do this so you can help me there and I can help you with this let's do it and I don't necessarily mean in a transactional way it can be anything from you know political organizing to just being there for each other I was in a conversation recently after a protest that I attended where one woman was talking to another about her child um her like how she's had to fight for her child's rights in school um her special her daughter has like special educational needs so how she's fighting for those rights and offering my friend tips on what to do and how to do it and she was basically saying reach out to me I'll help you organize it don't worry I've got you and my other friend was going thank you this you have no idea how much this means and they hadn't really known each other before then and to watch that happen, I think is just, it's incredible. And so I would hope that they would be doing that too, for whatever purpose it might be. And I also hope that my grandma would be having the best time ever. <laughs> I'm sure she would. I mean, more wild, more widely, um, how does your kind of personal feminism and your 
politics? How do they intersect with your writing? Oh, I don't think the two can be separate at all. I mean, I wrote uh, my poetry collection, Teeth in the Back of My Neck, um, when I was working for a humanitarian organization founded by Nelson Mandela. So looking at kind of global issues through a feminist lens. And I had an academic background in that already. So it it never, it was never a, a choice in a way. And like, I know that sounds a bit wanky, I guess, to say like, it was never a choice. I just have to write about these things, <laughs> but I have to write about what compels me. And I have this saying of like my book, like I want people to come away from it as if they're on fire. Uh, and hopefully that galvanizes them to just, even if it's not to do anything, just to think about the world slightly differently. Um, because it feels like sometimes it's it's so easy to disengage with that and to kind of burrow down into our individual worlds. And sometimes you need to do that. There's no shame in having to do that sometimes. But if we get too comfortable in doing that, injustices pass us by and we kind of watch as if we ourselves are completely powerless to to change that or to, to address that or to prevent it from happening again. And I just don't accept that. Um, and so that's why it weaves itself into my writing in in all kinds of ways. Like my short story collection is explore it explores so many uh aspects of womanhood um and also questions like what kind of world would it be like if women just didn't face any consequences for just not just for their existence but for the things they do because I get really tired of that trope of you know powerful woman gets like humbled or killed at the end you know like the, like a witch or or a powerful um villain you know female villain gets torn down and murdered or imprisoned or something like her power is taken away from her like it, there are so few stories out there where a woman can behave badly and get away with it she always has to be punished so I'm really exploring that and leaning into that with a beautiful lack of consequence my short story collection and it is just the most fun mm -hmm. and I think that um right now in the very difficult and turbulent times that we live in I want I want more powerful women to I want I want them to be the center of things uh whether that's changing things for the better obviously I don't want them behaving badly uh that can stay in fiction but I want powerful women to be taking the reins a bit more and they obviously are all over the world but I just want more I want more and more and more and I want more feminist like really deeply radical feminist ways of of organizing and of of, of doing politics to become more mainstream and not this like cool fringe thing that you can read about but then go oh well that would never work in real life I mean I guess uh, it feels apt given uh we're recording this the day after Halloween and kind of there's a lot of witchiness around Halloween and mm. villainous women and and there's been a real shift towards celebrating mm -hmm. that kind of power in women rather than uh not do you feel that um your own experience as a woman influences your writing. I mean, obviously, that's a kind of basic question. Every, you know, everyone's experiences reflect, influences their writing, but specifically, kind of as a young uh, uh, Brazilian Montenegrin woman, um, how how has that experience intersected with with how you write? Oh yeah, it absolutely influences it. Um, and the my experiences actually led me to 
it kind of kick-started my writing career you know I had never really I'd always always wanted to write I had always written um since since I could write but I had never been able to envision myself as a writer as a young woman it was always in my head of like well when you're 50 and you've had your real job then maybe you could think about writing something because that's the only time anyone will ever listen to you which is a ridiculous thing to think but that is genuinely what I thought and then I wrote a poem called 23 and me and that poem is really about my experiences as a woman of mixed heritage uh living in the UK with kind of all these slightly tenuous ties to all these different countries and how as I get older those ties become ever more tenuous and how there was very few people that I knew that could relate to that like including my own parents whose sense of identity was only strengthened by being away from their home countries and whereas mine was like kind of constantly being diluted and I was questioning my own identities constantly and so I wrote 23andMe which is about that DNA testing website where you can you know do the DNA testing kit and send it off and get your results and know where you're from yay Uh, and I wrote about how for me that um that actually brings up so many questions and so many I'm actually scared of doing a test like that because imagine if I am not from where I've always thought I was from imagine if these stories that have been kind of passed down to my family aren't as accurate as we thought they were and suddenly my entire identity which is already so fractured and tenuous and delicate is kind of ripped apart and taken away from me and then what the hell am I and I wrote that poem and I submitted it to the Murky Books New Writers Prize. And that's what won me the prize. And that poem and that, that like that kind of very brutal honesty around my experiences, that's what led me to getting a publishing contract and literary representation. So it has been with me through my entire writing journey. And it will be with me, I think, um, because my novel, as I'm writing a short story collection and a novel at the same time, which both of which I'm doing for the first time ever. And it's it's an experience, uh, I should say. Um, and the novel Strangerland is about my parents and how they met in London. Uh, and they have this like really incredible love story that is, un- it's truly unbelievable how they met, how they got together. They were like married within like a few months of knowing each other, didn't really speak the same language. Uh, didn't have anything in common the internet wasn't around so like my mom's family didn't like hadn't like no way of getting to her when she was getting married in like a completely strange country that none of them had heard of before so it's it's stayed with me throughout my writing career and it influences my writing in so many different ways and then obviously there's that element of being a woman which I think you can probably relate to as well that feeling of like being a woman is is this beautiful thing but it also comes with a lot of danger and a lot of um frustration and a lot of pain um as well for me physically as well and that bleeds into all of my writing it just would be impossible for it not to because I write about what it is like to be a woman in this world and I write about it from as many different perspectives as I feel able to and I think that when people read my writing and I when I have the kind of privilege of talking to other people about my writing they always say that they can see themselves in my work and that 
doesn't always go for women it goes for non-binary people and men too have, have told me that they can see themselves in my work because I kind of try and draw on these universal aspects of humanity but I write about it from the perspective of a woman and hopefully that comes across to people and it, it, the messages that I'm trying to convey come across and stick with people uh, and I think it's because I put my own experiences in everywhere and hopefully that makes them feel a little bit more real or it helps people remember them a little bit more mm. can you tell us a bit more about your um the feminist invoicing the creative writing workshop that you run yeah oh so I, I love feminism voicing I started it in uh March um of last year so it's about uh, almost two well year and a half old um and it is a feminist kind of movement but also workshops I, I run workshops I've had the privilege of running them all around the country um and I it, but people can submit to the project without having attended a workshop and basically what I ask people to do is I ask them to invoice systems of oppression whether that be the patriarchy whether that be like capitalist structures in their life whether that be a combination of multiple things I ask them to invoice for something that they want to reclaim or something that they feel like they're owed so a great example is in a recent workshop that I ran somebody invoiced for a wedding that they had to well they it, the impression that I got from this person was that they weren't sure whether they should have gone through with this wedding but they did for many reasons but they were invoicing for the cost of the wedding itself but they were also invoicing for the experiences of being a bigger like a, a person in a bigger body and a fatter body in a world that does not like fat people uh, and that it actively discriminates against them and they were talking about the ramifications of fat phobia um, when it comes to wedding dresses and how difficult it was to find something um, for them that they could feel beautiful in. And, you know, people can interpret the project in so many different ways. There are people who invoice for memories. There are people who invoice for actual like monetary um, values. There are people who invoice for items of clothing. Uh, there's somebody who invoiced for like all of these dishes that they denied themselves when they were in the middle of you know a, a quite a serious eating disorder there was uh, somebody who invoiced for uh, a single bouquet of flowers because she was really exhausted of going to vigils for dead women for women who are murdered by men uh, and so it, it serves as this outlet for people to I think just explore these power dynamics and these systems of oppression that have been present their entire lives and it gives them this safe space to kind of put those feelings out there and kind of release them into the world. And for that reason, I find that that people find those workshops to be incredibly cathartic and the practice of writing it incredibly cathartic. And it's funny because people say, oh, I'm not a poet, I'm not a writer. And then they will stand up and read the most beautiful piece of work that I've ever heard. Um, and I, 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 it's often women that tend to say that actually, which I think is, yeah, probably... Uh, a whole other kettle of fish to talk about but it's a real privilege for me to run the movement because people trust me with their stories and for the most part when people write this invoice they will submit it to the feminist invoicing instagram which is just feminist invoicing on instagram um and they and that story will go out there and be shared in the world by um all the people who support the page and who follow the page and it's just yeah it's a real privilege for me to run and I feel incredibly lucky that people have been 
so trusting and so open with their experiences and so willing to share I always ask uh, my guests one final question uh, which is what are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way to become a better feminist oh my gosh that's a hard question uh <laughs> what am I doing um I guess this feels like a bit of a cop-out answer but um the two things that I kind of do on an everyday basis is so I used to work for the Women's Equality Party it's the UK's only feminist political party uh I left recently to focus on my writing but I still uh, kind of volunteer with them and show up to protests that they're running and I'm joining their conference this weekend uh but I still try and be politically active every day uh or you know as as often as I can through them um but the other thing that I do is I also try and read as widely as possible um because I think it's very easy certainly for me at least it's very easy for me to reach towards fiction and like certain genre certain types of fiction because when I'm reading I just want to like relax at the end of a long day and I want something not necessarily easy but I want something that I can fall into and forget the rest of the world uh through it but I'm trying also to, to like switch out so every for every fiction I'll read a non-fiction and I'm really really trying to read perspectives that I have no understanding of be, just because it's not it's not my background it's not my story so you know writings by other women women of color non-binary people trans people um indigenous writers just so that I am aware like I don't I don't fall into the trap of thinking that my perspective of the world is the only perspective of the world um so I'm currently reading um abolition feminism now which is all about abolishing the prison system and that's written by three black women and it's not an easy read at all um it's it's like a slow read for me but if I don't uh, constantly make space and time to learn new things and to listen to other women especially black feminists black lesbian feminists where kind of for me all feminism kind of comes from them if I hear something or read something it's probably come from uh, a black woman a, a black activist um yeah it's just so important <laughs> because it's so easy to get um caught in this way of thinking of like my way of thinking is the correct way of thinking and I'm doing it right so by constantly reading and educating myself I think uh, I can try and avoid that trap as much as possible even though I'm sure I fall into it constantly well Monica I had a, a wonderful time at your dinner party oh yay and thank you so much for coming on to our podcast today thank you